Coach K, despite what we might think of him in some aspects, on paper, bare bones, straight up, deserves the credit he deserves for the winning he's been able to do at Duke, the sustainability, and how good they have been long-term. That is a direct reflection of how good you are as a coach and how good your program is. Yes, the common person may argue, well, yeah, you just got to recruit at Duke. Yeah, but you had to get to the point of being good enough to where the recruiting becomes easier. Nick Saban didn't take Alabama over, and everyone's like, that's it. They're number one forever. They're going to win as much as they do. No. Nick Saban had to put the work in as a Rocky Romanella that we have on this show a lot of times may say they, he tightened the lug nuts on the Duke basketball program to the point where it was a well-oiled machine. Those tires weren't falling off and it's rode consistently for 30 years. And to that, you have to give coach K credit, but it answered, it really raises the question. Who is the greatest in your mind, college basketball coach of all time. And what we'll do, because it's, it is really, it's got to be our favorite part of the show, right? We'll bring in the one, the only, I say this every time, but it's not true, the other, Rocky Romanella, onto the program, and we can get his thoughts on this conversation. Rocky? Good morning, Andrew Romanella. What's up? How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I mean, I don't know how John Wooden isn't the best coach of all time. And, and I think that's fair. Can you please enlighten the group as to why you feel that way? So right now, uh, I'm looking at uh, the, the, a list of the best coaches with the most Final Four appearances. Okay. Um, so so Chisefsky is number one now with 13 Final Four appearances. Okay. Don't you think it would be more? Um, I, I do. And he's, he's got the most at 13. I mean, it's really hard yeah. to do if you, th- I mean, you know, like you, you have to think about how hard it really is to do and yep. Yep. how but, we yep. celebrate the sweet 16. That's how hard the final four is. Yes. And he's only got five championships. Yes, correct. And Who, so that's where, that's where John Wooden takes, takes the cake up. Now, are you right. are you somebody that thinks about the landscape of college basketball when you think about this conversation? Well, that's why I can. That's why I put John Wooden at the top. Now, obviously, it's harder for it's harder for the coaches today to win because there there's a lot more parity, right? And so, and that's you know that's why Oriyama almost gets a little bit more praise than Shasevsky because you can look at what he he did with UConn and is doing with UConn comparative to John Wooden in UCLA, right? Comparative to Wayne Gretzky in hockey, comparative to Michael Jordan in basketball. These people are considered the best ever because they moved the game into a new era. Right. Right? Like that that is why it's so it, it's so uh, that's why they become the best. They're they're responsible for taking it from old to new. So even though you know it's harder for it's harder for them to win, so you can't really compare total championships. 
But I think the responsibility and being the pivot point is what gives them the leg up in the, the talk of history. Yeah, I agree with that because essentially, if you think about John Wooden was the first person to start the run of, okay, this is the best team at this level. It's almost impossible to beat them. But what that always spawns is other programs and players at the time in the country saying, well, no, now I want to go to Kansas or I want to go to Kentucky, or I want to go to USC, or I want to go to another school and beat those guys. And then as television started to open up the horizon and the spectrum of how many college teams got national recognition, then it was no longer just UCLA is the greatest team. That's what's happening with UConn right now, right? Like for a 20-year span, you probably could have put a, a, a some bananas down on UConn winning the national title and been right 62% of the time. Now, it's probably closer to 15%. Like, that was their first Final Four appearance in, like, two years because South Carolina's gotten good. Stanford won the title last year. Like, there are other programs now that have the resources and can do and have the coaching staffs that UConn has, which is ultimately what happened with UCLA. And that is also why I think you opened the door for a conversation of multiple coaches like a Roy Williams, like a coach K. I don't think Jim Beheim, but I know a lot of people think that he was a great coach, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you look at, so, so the funny thing about Roy Williams and Dean Smith is that they're number three and number four on most final four pairs. It's crazy. It's the same school too. It's mind blowing. So, so that's, so that's where you're like, okay, North Carolina then becomes probably one of the most storied universities in college basketball, right? To be able to have, you know, coaches be that good, right? Think about it. Duke, was Duke anything before Mike Krzyzewski? No, they were not I very good. They were in last place in the ACC or, or at the bottom of the ACC when he took over the program. Correct. In the 80s. You are correct. So it's interesting. The other thing, you know, I, you know what I like to give Coach K credit for? And, and I've actually, I think this is actually more impressive um, and some of the college stuff is his ability to coach the, the, the dream team, the modern dream team, and win gold medals. Well, you We know, haven't seen the U.S. men's basketball team play anywhere near the level they played at since he hasn't been the coach. That is correct. And a lot of people have talked about how after Coach K started um, coaching the Olympic team, that is when he started wanting – essentially the one-and-done model at Duke. I want to coach the best players. I, I don't want to necessarily have to develop them, more or less scheme them, allow them to do what they do, and then allow them to go be really great basketball players. And it's weird, right? Like, you, we, we've talked about this last week with Villanova. Like, they're one of those teams that is just always there. Like, I could tell you probably in my career, and we'll get to the championship game, but Kansas and Bill Self has been a program that I have traditionally picked to and believed would do really well in this tournament because of him and the consistency of what he's done in his program over the course of time. He has guys, and yeah, he has some one-and-done guys over the course of time, but for the most part, it's a sustainability model. He's going to have guys come in for two, three, even four years. He's going to have a team, 
even if it's three or four guys, but they're going to be important guys to that team that have been in college basketball for two or three years, which is ultimately what always gives you more of a chance to win down the stretch of the tournament because it's players that have actually played a lot of games in their career and actually have experience to go back on, which allows them to have a hand up when playing whatever it is, six games if you want to win a title in the tournament. Yeah, and that's why, and, and and exactly, and and it's funny you mentioned those guys. So Billy, excuse me, uh, Bill Self and Jay Wright, both four uh, Final Four appearances. Bill Self, Kansas, his first one was '08, and Jay Wright's his first one was '09, and they've been there four times since, which is impressive. Out of all the guys I'm looking at right now, other than Billy Donovan, whose first Final Four appearance was in 2000 with Florida. I mean, they're the best guys in the millennium era in the 2000s. Well, I mean, that 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 started in the 2000s, right? Like Roy Williams obviously has been there a lot in the 2000s. Tom Izzo has been there a lot in the 2000s. Um, but those guys, I would consider the old guard comparative to Bill Self and Jay Wright as, as kind of more of the new guard when it comes to, to great college coaches. It's probably John Wooden, number one. And then I think Gino Oriema, number two. And then- for, for what they've done, if you're looking at what they've done for their respective sides of the game of basketball, yeah. Yeah, you because have to, you have I'm, to have them up there. I'm thinking about it like Michael Jordan. I'm thinking about it like Steph Curry. Thinking about it like Wayne Gretzky. By, like by, by the way, Pat Pat Summit could, I mean, should be in consideration because she's got eight, she had eight national championships at Tennessee herself. She has about 11. And I was going to say, I would actually probably put her because is there a male coach? And you could look this up while you're on there now. Is there a male coach that even came close to touching the precipice of what uh, John Wooden did? Like there are male coaches that have, definitely push the needle and we've been talking about like three or four of them now right like yeah but I don't know if there's anyone like like whereas Pat Summit did something that not that we we didn't think would would continue but then we watched somebody take it and like almost do it better you know like and it's no disrespect to what Pat Summit in Tennessee did but Gino Oriama found a way to sustain it for significantly longer yeah it's funny when you start looking and I'm looking at the years and and so it, it's crazy. Like eighty six to ninety four is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven final four appearances for for Coach K. So in ten years, excuse me, in eight years, he's in the final four seven times, and then it starts spreading out. He misses it till ninety nine, then it starts spreading out, and then you know he's kind of like every two to three years over the course of the two thousand. So like. John Wooden, another one, like from 62 to 74, excuse me, to 75, literally all 13 years he coached, he's in the final four 12 times and he wins it 11 times. So, you know, when you look at that, Gino has that kind of dominance in his stat line, you know, that that's where he becomes comparable. That's why he has to be at the top. It's, It's the runs of consecutive years that really separate, you know, these people from the next great people, which is like, now you look at like your Tom Izzo, why is Tom Izzo up there? Look at it. Another person from 99 to 2010, right? Five 
six, excuse me, six Final Four appearances. So all these people that we're looking at, they've been able to not only do it long term and they do it with championships and appearances, but it's that gap where they're in command, where it, they truly are a dynasty over the course of like a decade type run. Yeah, just like what if you wanted to take a professional example, it, it's really exactly what Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and the New England Patriots have done for our entire lifetime. I mean, that's yes. that's exactly what we're talking about here. And I think it's rarefied air, but because of the statistics that you just brought up, that's why I believe it can be a conversation that includes college basketball as a whole you know what i'm saying like because there might be some people that think what gino and pat summit did were a little bit more impressive than what john wooden did merely because of the competitive balance in the sport at the time with which both did it yeah i i don't agree with that but i understand yeah but but the other thing you have to realize about wooden is that he was it's so much more than winning about Wooden, not only did he win, he taught people how to coach winners and how to coach to get people better. And so that's, you know, when you look at that, you know, Pat Summit, Coach K, Gino, Dean, Roy, these guys are all now following in his foot. They're, they're, they're taking his lessons. Although Dean Smith was a lot, or was against him. So no, but like Roy Williams is a, like, they, they're all, you know, they're all learning from, from Wooden too. So there's that, that, that gives them a leg up. And I got to make another point because I just think it's fascinating, especially in division one football and basketball, how significant the coach plays a role, right? Cause if you look at it, the coaches, both GM and head coach, you know, if you're comparing it to a professional organization, we saw an incredible game on Saturday night between North Carolina and Duke. And all we can talk about is if Coach K is one of the best coaches of all time. <laughs> we we did, and I know we'll get into it. And it's it's just because I felt like we were spoiled over the final four weekend, both on the men's and the women's side, with the great programs and coaches. Like, and I know we talked about this, like how we thought there was so much parity in this tournament that it ends up being like the blue blood programs you always see there, and that's probably why. And by the way. Really quickly before we go into the UNC Duke conversation and hit us up at Wide World of Rome, Twitter, Instagram, The Rome Show 1 on Facebook, whatever it is, if you want to get in on the action, who you think the greatest college basketball coach of all time is, blank, straight up statement, doesn't matter what side of the ball. Uh, shout out to Tara uh, Vandeveer, uh, who is the head women's basketball coach at Stanford. I believe she's the winningest coach or... She, her, and, and Gino, essentially what happens is they just kind of go back and forth right now and who has the most wins of all time. But Stanford won the title last year, and she has three yeah. national championships in her career. Um, and she and she has, over the course of her career, obviously, has won more games than, than Pat Summit did, was ahead of Gino. I think she actually still is because they won just as many games this year as UConn did. Um, but... That's a scenario where there's not as many championships involved. And I know that's an interesting subject when people talk about the greatest of all time in a certain area. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So, so this is South Carolina's second with Staley. And uh, Tara Vanderveer has three championships Correct. at uh, Stanford. So, both, you know, reaching that, that they're on, they're on, they're the next crew. They're the next crew. And, and again, like that's why Gino has such, you know, that's why he's got to be considered top three because, like, again, Pat Summit, Gino, paving the way. Like, these coaches are now 
that was going to operate similar. Like the game is, has more players. There's better teams across the entire country. Like all of that happens because you have a dominant team, like showing people that, wow, this is awesome. I want to be a part of it. So we have spent a minute, right? Breaking down our feelings on coach K and the end of his career and all that stuff. Now I want to take a minute and I want to break down what we witnessed on Saturday night because I don't think people realize like the magnitude. It's kind of crazy, really, because I don't think I realized it either until I was really entrenched in watching the game and checking out the Twitter and seeing what all the former UNC and Duke guys were, were, were talking about. And the bottom line is this game was so big in the in the history of that rivalry, Rocky, that it's like people actually think and believe, and it's probably true, like this is bragging rights now on this series for at least the next decade, regardless of what happens, because not only was it the first meeting in, in Final Four history between North Carolina and Duke, but it was also the the magnitude of the fact that UNC could end the run of Coach K's career and they were also there to give him a loss in his last game at Cameron. You couldn't have written a better movie script. Now the question is, how would you feel, Rocky? And I think I know, but I want you to hear it about no, the way I, it ended. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pure irony. It's pure, unadulterated sports irony you can't ask for anything better and and the fact that north carolina is ranked number eight and the fact that they were not in the acc championship game is that right that is correct and the fact that they did win that last regular season game in cameron indoor i mean it it, it just tells you a little bit about like sports irony is real and you get rewarded when you've earned it it's hard to explain, but if you talk to anyone who's played or anyone who's in competitive situations, when you, when you put work in, you get rewarded at the end, right? Like your team, like when you win the last game of the season, regardless of whether it's for the championship or not, it's typically a statement on, did you deserve this victory? Do you deserve the momentum? Is your program building? Did the players do what it took to move the ball forward to get closer to a championship if you're not in a championship? You know, and so that last game of the year is really telling for that. Now it's hard now it's harder for, you know, Saint Peter's to be like, Oh, well, we lost our last game. Well, when you look at it, like, no, those guys moved their program forward. They didn't need to win their last game. They need, they needed they want that one win in the tournament proved that. Those guys earned those wins. Right? Like so so that's, that's a good example. Here, you wonder, did Coach K set himself up for the failure? I, I, it's hard for me, and I, you, you may think I just hate Coach K, but if you knew me, you knew I would have never had a bad thing to say about Coach K until 18 months ago. Yeah, and so, you're right, though, because if he doesn't, if he goes about this year like it's a normal year and there are only merely questions because that always happens towards the end of, of people's careers, no matter coach or player. If that's all we're talking about here, we might actually, I would actually love to put him in truth serum Rocky and say, if you had never announced this and this year played out the exact same way it played out, I would almost bet that he would be coming back next year and making next year's last year, just so this wasn't the way his career ended. 
However, now he made his bed. He's got to sleep in it. And there's really, unless he Tom Brady's, there's not much he can do. Unless, uh, listen, unless he's the type of person who believed that, you know, even though, you know, for the course of his entire career, North Carolina and Duke had been trading successes and victories. You know, if you really look at his, his runs, you know, he was beating North Carolina. You know, in, in, in Coach K's eyes, he was the mountain of the ACC, not North Carolina. And so maybe he's the type of person that needed to be defeated for him to know it was time to, to step away. Yeah. You know, like there's that, side, there's that side of the sports equation too. Um, but I, I, just th- through his actions, it's hard for me to believe that that is the case. Yeah, and and by the way, the the game on the court was phenomenal. It was it was, it was incredible. The last two and a half minutes were exactly what you wanted. Exactly, and I was going to say that. And it's and it's so now when you look at the 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 matchup, okay, you have Kansas playing North Carolina. Now, besides the fact that I had had chosen Kansas from the get go to be the team that would win this tournament, okay, which I'm pumped about. I have two offshooting thoughts about this game, okay? The first one is I feel like Kansas has the upper hand because they kind of secretly and silently, as a one seed, made it to the championship game because this UNC-Duke thing happened on the other side of the bracket. The second point on that is I feel like it is... The championship game for UConn was the final four against Duke because of the magnitude of that game. It's one of those scenarios where I feel like if UNC doesn't win this tournament, this is going to sound messed up, but it's kind of true if you think about it. It's like the U.S. national team in 1980. Herb Brooks said it. Yeah, it's great. You could beat the Soviet Union, but if you don't go win the gold medal, it means nothing. Like, people forget that that wasn't the gold medal game. So if they don't win the gold medal, it almost, it doesn't mean nothing, but it doesn't mean as much as it did. So now if UNC doesn't win this national championship, does it mean a lot? Sure. But if you can hang a banner on this one, then it really means a whole lot more. Yeah. For, it, well, it's, it's interesting, though. Like you, you, So on, on the women's side, right, you would argue that this wasn't the best UConn team, and they almost willed themselves to the to the finals Correct. and then were finally exposed for what they were which Correct. is they were not the best team in the league they and had then the, the second best at, player in the country on their team that's why that's right and and you look at a villanova team who you know was a good team they were atop the big east and and as they should be but no one really looked at them as the villanova teams we've looked at over the last four years and again they good coaching uh, they're sound, right? They play good basketball. They find themselves in the final four. They're exposed versus Kansas. And so now you've got like, is this the time where UNC actually being an eight seed, really not, not, not being atop the ACC all year, you know, comparative to where Duke was, is this where they, they finally get exposed and we're like, you know what, like this, this run is over. Kansas has been, you know, this is kind of where they're exposed. That's kind of what I've been thinking about. That's on like the, the tactical side and like that sports side. Then there's the other side that you just can never count out in sports. And that's the fact that you win in Cameron, 
you ride the momentum through the first round of the playoffs or uh, the first round of the tournament, can't say playoff tournament. And you find yourself in a, and you beat them again. And I mean, I don't know how that confidence doesn't play a factor in the game to make it actually more of a close game than them actually getting blown out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I just feel like if they don't find a way, it's, 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 I think it's messed up, right? Because also you get skewed a little bit by the name on the uniform and the seed that they actually are. Their seed is more or less what they were for majority of the season. Now we all know what, what happens in this tournament. You can throw away what went on in the regular season. I get all of those things. But at the end of the day, what you generally learn with most higher seeds that make a run in this tournament is that they will, to your wording, will get exposed when the right bigger or better program slash team comes along that is a little bit more polished and locked in to take advantage of those little mistakes that like a Purdue should be good enough to make on St. Peter's, but hasn't been there enough times to be good enough to do it consistently. Whereas that's where I, I just fall on Kansas because even though it's the North Carolina uniform and the program that you just mentioned could be considered possibly the best ACC program in the last 15 to 20 years, despite what you may think, Kansas, that team, that coach, as a one seed, have clearly stayed the consistently great program that they've been, whereas North Carolina's got a new head coach in this position and a team that has not necessarily proven, besides in this two-week span, to this point that they can be that team at the top. This game is essentially what tells you, tells the committee, hey, we were never an eight seed. We were better than that. Yeah, and, and you think, and if, if North Carolina wins, for me, you just, again, it's about the program again. And you just go back to, what is this program about? Right, and you think about the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady Patriots, you just think championships. When you think North Carolina, you think Michael Jordan, Dean Smith, and championships. So if we're, if we're going to witness another North Carolina championship, in the third, now the third generation from Dean Smith. You, you, you're just like, these, these, I mean, they're just a machine. Like, you should never count them out. And it's funny how, it's funny how Coach K's shadow really has kind of taken over this year when in reality, what North Carolina is doing, and, and they're sitting there like, thank you. Thanks for not looking. Thanks for not paying attention to us. Right. And is this considered because it's North Carolina? Do you consider this a Cinderella run because they were labeled an eight seed? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if if insert small named school here eight seed makes a run to the title, everyone and their mothers like this is Cinderella. This is an unbelievable story. But in this scenario, it's not really thought of that way. Okay, so thirty three and six is a pretty good record, right? Do you think that 29 and 9 is a good record? Yeah, I think that's a great record. Okay, because the Tar Heels were 29 and 9 this year. Were they are they really a Cinderella? How about, no. But they're not a Cinderella. It's crazy that they get ranked in 8th seed. But that's because no, of how they're they finished eight, in the and, ACC. And Hall was a 9 is a, like it's a, it, it was a joke. I, that's a joke. Like I, I don't know how they were rated in 8 and and it's still it's it's baffling to me. At 29 and 9 in the ACC like I'm sorry, like you're 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 not an AC, you're a four seed, for sure. 
Yeah, it's such a skewed system. I'd love to get in that room one day. I want to be a fly on the wall during selection day. I would like to be on the fly on the wall during like the college football playoff one too. And who, who knows? Maybe they put him as an eight seed just with the hope that maybe if it all worked out, they would they would play Duke, and that was the only way to get him into a bracket where they could meet each other for the first time ever. So they put him there. You I know, definitely believe that stuff happens. I do truly believe that. Like if they're like, oh, we could make UNC an eight seed in this region, or we can make them an eight yeah, seed so, in this region. Mm, this is a better. And, know, and, and by the way, if it were if it worked out the right way that that they would have thought UNC would have had to play Kentucky to get to Duke. So then they, they would have been able to prove in that it was there. Now, instead, they had to play St. Peter's. So That's you know, true. That's or, a great point. Or, so, so they would have had to play Kentucky. Then they would have had to play Purdue. But they ended up playing St. Peter's. Yeah. So, I'll tell you what, man. It's crazy how, like, when one team like St. Peter's... Now, no one really expected them to go to the Elite Eight, but even just winning the first game of the weekend really just blows. It's crazy how that really does change the whole thing. Like... You're 100% right. Like if Kentucky does what they're supposed to do. Now, clearly they're not good enough to win the national championship if they were in that moment bad enough to lose to St. Peter's. I'm not saying that they played 100 times, Kentucky would lose 50. They'd lose one out of, and they'd win 99. But the point being, if that's going to happen over a six-game span in this tournament, you're not good enough to win it. Now, if Kentucky yeah. wins, though, you're right. This is all. You're not even, these storylines don't happen. Like it's, it is really unbelievable and you know what's crazier too and I know this has to do with like the conferences and the breakdown and how people get into the tournament and all that stuff but the fact that 11 and 12 seeds are in the play-in game and like a 16 seed like St. Peter's is just a straight up 16 seed that plays in the first round of the tournament and it's like imagine if they did what you and I talk about all the time which is if you're supposed to be a play-in team then you should be a 16 seed how that also changes everything as well. It, it's just the whole thing. It's I, I hate it and I love it at the same time because I hate some of the things that they do to seed and choose. But at the end of the day, when we all watch it, man, it's just it it, it lives up to its billing yeah. every year. Yeah, it does. And you're just I mean, in reality, you're fluffing up your bubble teams. You feel bad that you got too many, you know, mid majors right. getting conference championships in. I mean, that's all it is. Let's be serious. Yeah, that's great. You you're know? trying to create a story <laughs> like putting Notre Dame and Rutgers in the eleven no. seed play in. You want to? It's it's just it's it's, it's regional. I get yeah, it. It's travel. I get it. But it's a little bit of a story too. Yeah, yeah. You know why not? But but for for whatever reason, you've never you've never seen a playing team go past like get into the Sweet 16, but you have seen your 11, 12, 13, 14 seeds get into the, the Sweet 16, So, which is you know, which is ironic as well. So it's like, why are we even doing this? Rock, I have a Romalytic for you before we move on from the NCAA, all right? So I'm going to give it to you, yep. and I'm going to give it to the people. All right, here you go. Your Romalytic today is why I believe Kansas is going to win the national championship game. And I'm going to go ahead and say that the score is going to be roughly 72 to 66. I think it's going to be in that range Kansas comes out on top. Did you know, Rocky, that Bill Self has a career record of 708 and 214 in 27 seasons as a head coach, he has coached at four different locations, the fourth being Kansas. He's been there for 17 years, and he has a career record of 501 and 109 at Kansas. He's got four Final Four appearances, as you noted, a 2018 national championship, and 
an NCAA tournament record of 54 and 21. Bill Self, arguably at least one of the top 10 best coaches in NCAA basketball history, 708 career wins. Rocky, when I saw that, I looked it up and I started doing a little bit of research on his career. I always loved him as a head coach, knew he was a great head coach, but that Romalytic right there really solidifies how great he has been over the course of his career. Yeah, that's, I mean, you, I had no idea. Crazy, right? You now, know, you I, just think Kansas, they're, they're always going to win, but you know, that's pretty crazy. Side trivia question for you here, okay? Because you're never going to get this right, but I'll give you some hints, okay? Bell Self okay. coached at three schools before he coached at Kansas, okay? I will give you two of them, and I'll see if you can guess the third, okay? Naturally, he started at Oral Roberts, you know, lower level, small Division One program, then went to Tulsa, a little bit of a step up there, and then went to this school, Okay, in a state that has uh, a near uh, and dear place to your heart. Okay, before he went to Kansas, can you name that school? As the head coach? As the head coach. He was the head coach at Oral Roberts, then the head coach at Tulsa, then he went to this school. He was the head coach at blank. A state that I I hold near and dear to my heart, man. There's a lot of states. There are, but you could start to narrow them down. (laughs) <laughs> you've, gi- you've given me better hints there are fi- um, uh, the state starts with a vowel yeah so it's definitely either Iowa or Iowa State that is incorrect it would be the state of Illinois which you were born in and that would be ah. <laughs> uh, Illinois <laughs> fighting Illini he was the head coach I forget, at. yeah Oh, all right, interesting. Go line I. <laughs> you know, if I had said like yep. University of Chicago, I feel like it actually would have hit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You well, yeah. Well, but it makes sense. Hey, wait. Hey, where did he go to college, Brandon Jacobs? Where did he go to college, Brandon Jacobs? Did he go to University of Illinois? No, he went to Southern Illinois. Oh, what up? What? <laughs> Ah, oh for one, Andrew Romanella. <laughs> where did he go to college? <laughs> that was impressive. That was good out of you. The fact that you had that off the top of your head is actually ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, why wouldn't I remember? He's one of my favorite giants ever. He is one of your favorite giants ever. Okay, this is the Rome Show here, twelve ounce sports radio, Zingo TV, channel seven sixty one, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter live. We give you the option to reach out to us any way, shape, or form. You can hit the social medias at Wide World of Rome everywhere. The Rome Show won on Facebook. We got the question behind us on the board. Who is the greatest college basketball coach of all time? Write in. Give us your thoughts. We already gave you ours. Rocky, I want your national championship prediction, okay? And then I would like to talk a little baseball before I know you'd like to go into hockey with Rocky. Go Tar Heels. And uh, a score, please. Uh, 76 to 73. Okay, we are going directly head-to-head here. Jayhawks on my end and the Tar Heels on your end. We will see who comes to fruition. Who did you originally choose? Uh, Oh, I I put my bracket away. As good as I did in the first two rounds, I did terrible uh, in the last. No, I had like I think I had I think I had like Tennessee versus Kentucky. Like I went on a run with Tennessee for some reason because I was just like 
my fan chip just was like, yeah, why not go for the vault? They're number three. Like, I, you know, why not? Yeah, you were just randomly then, uh, feeling that school. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I had Gonzaga winning. That's, that's okay. what I had. I had, I had Gonzaga playing Tennessee. I had Gonzaga, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Kansas for the Final Four. So. All right. I respect it. That's actually, that's really not a awful. bad choice when looking at the bracket. So, there's a lot of excitement, okay, in this offseason for baseball. Once the lockout ended, okay, there was a lot of sadness. There was a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of what's going to go on with Major League Baseball. How many games are we going to miss? Are we going to whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what that is now turned into is I think, and this is just my personal opinion, and I, I know I see it differently than most, but a lot of excitement for baseball this year. There have been a, a lot of pretty interesting moves, players signing with teams you may not have expected, which we've talked about a little bit here and for us, more specifically, the New York Metropolitans, it has been a really exciting offseason. And as you've watched spring training, a shortened version of it, kind of matriculate and get ready for a less than four days away a start of uh, the baseball season, the Mets, not only just from a pitching staff standpoint, but from an overall team standpoint, offense, defense, look really good. But the driver in this whole thing is Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, and the three dudes behind them in the starting rotation, whether that's a combination of Carrasco, Walker, Bassett, in any order, does not matter, uh, uh, being really good, Rocky. And news comes out the other day. And, you know, some people might have missed this because there's so much going on in in other sports that people are watching, especially from a, a banana standpoint. But people didn't realize that Jacob DeGrom gets hurt, okay, he goes and gets an MRI, and they find out that he's got a stress reaction, I don't know what that means, in his right scapula, and is now out, essentially indefinitely rocky. And I want your response here, but this is what Jacob deGrom said, and then I want your thoughts. He said, I'm really frustrated. I came into camp feeling really good. I felt like my elbow and shoulder were in a good spot. And then to hear a stress reaction in the bone was definitely something I was not expecting. So the level of frustration is really, really high right now. And Rock, this is coming off a year where in his first 15 starts, he had a 108 ERA, and then we never saw him pitch again for some unknown reason. I think it's time for the Mets to move from Port St. Lucie. They can no longer training camp there because I am sick and tired of being excited and getting some stupid injury announcement every time I look at my sports alert because both of them are hurt now and I can't figure out why our best players cannot stay healthy in spring training. I don't understand how you show up to spring training and just have a lurking injury that has been there for the last six months. Like, has no one at the Mets been monitoring you? You're our most valuable asset. How do we not know that this is there? I don't get it. But this is my. But this is the. This is the interesting part. Like according to Degrom, he felt like he put his body in the best possible position to be ready this yeah, year. Yeah, Scherzer said the same thing too. Well, can he you, said the same thing too. I, I did. I lifted legs. I've been working out. Like blah blah blah. And I'm surprised that my hamstring tight. Yeah, I, I listen. I I don't disagree with you. It blows my mind. It really does. I don't. I don't understand it either. Right, but. 
I don't believe that either of them didn't do the work in the offseason. That's actually what concerns me more. Like, I wish it was a scenario where we were looking at it going, well, Jacob deGrom looked fat this year, so he was clearly out of shape. This is why he got hurt. But instead, it's the opposite. I I, I want him to go back. I want him to go back to beers and no working out at this point. I can't take it. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that was ever successful for him, but I I, I do think. Well, we didn't. I mean, I guess you just didn't know about all the injuries in the old days. But, like, I just. Well, it's ridiculous. Listen, and this is what this is a real conversation here that I don't think people want to have. Jacob DeGrom had Tommy John, it's probably over 10 years ago now, while he was in the minor leagues. And despite what people may believe, right? Oh, if you get get the Tommy John, you come you can come back throwing hard or strong. A lot of that has to do with the rehab. How well you do that, how efficiently you do that, and how you respond. It's still a major surgery, but also it's not a surgery that's meant to last forever. It is a reconstruction of a major ligament in your arm. So you, and he's throwing 100 miles per hour, essentially almost every pitch. So it's like the wear on the arm. I hate to say this, Rocky, but the conversation needs to be had. Is it just the fact that he maximized what he could out of a reconstructed arm? And it's now either a scenario where he just possibly won't be what he's ever been or there's another major surgery that he really probably has to have that they're either avoiding, not finding, or something along the lines. How do we teach our guys to not, like, think about it. Because velocity is, is, in my opinion, is the downfall of Noah Syndergaard. We've lost Noah Syndergaard because of his velocity. Because he was throwing as hard as he could every single time. And, and to your point, like, DeGrom has always thrown hard. Now, the difference between DeGrom and Syndergaard is location and the ability to command the pitches. Now, maybe three years ago, we should have been teaching Jacob DeGrom how to throw like Tom Glavin and Bartolo Cole. And maybe this is preventable. Or maybe he needs to start that when he gets back. Because when you look at Glavin and you look at Bartolo Colon, at the end of their careers, it was as if they were throwing a wiffle ball and they were not throwing a baseball. Because how can guys that live between 86 and 94 get that many guys out and be that effective? Location, movement, command. That is still the the best things that you could do as a pitcher. I wonder. Well, no. And to your point, I wonder if the problem for a guy like Jacob deGrom is he's always – probably thrown hard with ease. I'm sure that's, and it's obviously gotten harder as he's gotten older. That's a fact, but he's always thrown hard with ease. He's gotten to this point with this velocity and to your point, great command of both his fastball and his off-speed stuff. And so it's almost a scenario where it's like, how can, it's probably a hard mental trigger. Maybe, and, and I don't, this could be wrong too. I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. But maybe he's actually hurt because he's trying to slow himself down, but he naturally can't, and he's off slightly with his body. I don't know. No, it's it's possible. It's, listen, it's possible. It's, 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 it, listen, it, you don't blame them, but like it, it's just annoying. I mean, think about this, though. It's from an sad, injury too. standpoint. From an injury standpoint, what did the NFL just do in this offseason? They, 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 they opened up a commission to investigate the, the propensity of injuries across their league and across their players. Right? This isn't something that's going away. Injuries in sports, there is a direct correlation with the surface playing field, with the 
increase and attention on off-season workouts, in-season workouts, weight training, and injury, right? Think about it. Everything that you've heard you, you do when you work out is to prevent injury. The stronger your muscles are, the more protective they are to the things that you need your body to do to, to perform. Right. But is that creating is that creating more injuries? Is it is it putting too much strain on the body? Is there a way that we need to find a happy medium between the workouts that they're doing and the actual in game play? Because you can't sit here and tell me that for entire Jacob DeGrom's entire career, we've, by the way, since his Tommy John surgery, has been monitoring his pitch count, have been monitoring the number of times he's in the rotation, have been monitoring all these things, only to realize he's got some stupid reaction in a bone that you can barely see. Yeah, and, and it's almost like all of those things could have been wrong, you know? Like, yeah, you so could have been... it's just a freak accident at it, this point. Yeah, but, yeah, but and, and you've always said this, though, right? Because everyone's always afraid to go against the norm. So it's a five-man rotation. It's a natural starter. It's this. It's that. Hey, you know what? And I don't want to say this, but I have to say it. Maybe now, at this point in Jacob deGrom's career, it's better for him to be a reliever. Hey, you, you can't. Your body is great for 25 pitches at 97 to 99 miles per hour. But after that, because you're actually so good, well, you can continue to repeat that motion and throw that velocity, but the rest, well, your body's getting tired and it can't handle it. Well, think, think, think about this, Mr. Romo. Maybe pitch counting is what's killing these people. I, they're, they're, I know where you're going with you, this. You're not, you're not, you're not in a game. Pitchers are in the game to throw until they can't throw anymore, regardless of pitch count. That has been their job since the beginning of baseball. Your job is to command the game. Starting pitch. You control, that's right. You control the other team's offense. Your relievers are specifically there to support your start. Correct. And get you to the end of the game. In the advent of analytics, sports, sports workouts, uh, science, sports science, muscles, all of this stuff, you've started monitoring the amount that pitchers throw. So now I'm a, I'm a young guy. I'm Jacob DeGrand. I get Tommy John surgery in the minors. Yeah. I'm not even in the major leagues yet. So from the advent, the dawn of my career, you are monitoring the length in which that I can throw in a baseball game. You don't let me go past six innings. You don't let me go past seven innings. And so now over the course of my career, as I become the most dominant pitcher in baseball, I find myself in scenarios where I'm throwing eight innings, I'm throwing nine innings, I'm throwing seven innings, but that isn't the norm for me anymore. Yeah, yeah my whole career, you're right, my whole you're, career, it, you stopped like me. I'm, I'm building you to be a relief pitcher based on that. So now the strain becomes when I start pitching for longer periods of time. So now I get into spring training and I get into throwing routines that are supposed to work my arm out so I can go longer. And again, that's opposing to the actual work that you put me in to do because you're monitoring it the whole time. Maybe there's something there. No, you, you could be 100% correct because being in it over the course of a 56-game season at the college level, trying to monitor and manage how you work a pitching staff, when these guys throw, what's best for each guy. And that's the other thing, too, is like 
maybe this whole time, the process with which they've been getting Jacob DeGrom ready, he's been working out, he's been going about spring training, whatever it is, is a process that's really good for a guy that throws 93 to 94. You know what I'm saying? Like, I get what your point is. At the end of the day, something across the chain of his career, how he gets prepared, how good he is, how long he should be in games, how long he wasn't in games, all of that stuff plays into where we are at today. And somehow, some way, it is a going to be a travesty because I'm not giving up yet. But it is two and a half straight years, Rock, of what feels like the same thing. Looks good, looks good, could be the Cy Young Award winner again. There goes half the season, if not more, because of injury. So the bottom line, I'll, I could probably sum up essentially what you just said in the most layman's of terms. Something needs to change with the preparation to get this man prepared for a baseball season. No doubt. We, 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 don't, see him, we don't see him until Memorial Day or 4th of July if it's nothing serious. But they said it's a month. Right, you go a month and then you do the scan again. If it's gone, great, you're good. If it's not, you're you're done for the year. Yeah, that, and that's what's crazy. It's like there's not like anything in 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 between. So now, prior, so the Braves have had the best odds to win the National League East. They are plus one twenty odds. The Mets were in second at plus two hundred. Then the Phillies, the Marlins, and the Nationals, which is very interesting that the Marlins are, are twenty six hundred point better odds to win the division than the Nationals. That tells you a little bit about where they really do feel the Nationals are going to fall. Do you, Now, take your Mets fanhood out of it for a second. Just look at it, at it objectively. The Braves are, are coming off a World Series, but a World Series with, with they lost the World Series MVP to the Miami Marlins, and they lost quite possibly the best player in their franchise the last 10 years to the Los Angeles Dodgers. They have some questions with their, their starting pitching, which they also had last year. Those dudes just got hot at the right time. I still feel like even if DeGrom is hurt, and I don't believe Scherzer's is going to be long-term, but let's say you get 25 to 30 starts out of Scherzer this year and you get 10 out of DeGrom, right? I'm going to go on the set, the bad side. They're still good enough, I believe the Mets are, to truly compete for this division. I know Vegas, with everyone healthy, said that they weren't going to win it. I feel differently. How do you feel? I, I, it, it all depends. I, like, I really think it depends on those guys getting in the lineup by the time, by the time 4th of July comes around. And if at 4th of July you're not at least at 500, then no, you don't have a chance. I'm sorry. No matter, I, I mean, you do have a chance, but like you and I both know, like 4th of July is the day. That's, that's the time when people decide are you a contender or a pretender for the first time ever in this season? You are either contender or pretender. It's the first time people judge you at 4th of July. Right. The next time you get judged is Labor Day. Yeah. Well, the trade deadline, that's really what it would be. And, the, I mean, and to your so, point, I, I the mean, trade deadline. I mean, the lineup. The line. So the crazy thing is, is, is now you look at the modern day of sports, where the modern day sports says, if you have a strong enough lineup and can hit enough home runs, you can make up for your lack of a one-two pitch, your one and two pitchers. Yeah. So now it becomes. Now it becomes. It's really you know. It's. it's can I get five to six? out of the rest of the, uh, the rotation, and I can, can I be good between six and nine? And, like, you know, the Mets made moves to do both. They did, they made moves to bolster their lineup, which we're happy about, and they made moves to, to bolster their rotation, uh, their, their their release pitches. So, in theory, yes, they, they should finish. Like, if they don't, if they finish less than second place in the NL East, I'd be disappointed. 
I I think this is one of those years where it has to be a postseason berth for the Mets. Like it ha- what you've done this offseason, what you did last offseason, and the headliner of that obviously being Lindor, right? All of these things play into the fact that it's one of those postseason or bust type years for the Mets. And to further your point about why you believe July 4th is such an important date in baseball season is because the trade deadline is generally the last week of July, first few days of August. With the new collective bargaining agreement that was just signed, through 2026, the fle- there's a flexibility of the trade deadline, so it can exist either July 28th or any day in between that up until August 3rd. So that July 4th date is essentially that midpoint and also that time where you're like, okay, we got three weeks here to look around the league, decide if we're a contender or if we're a seller, right? And that does a lot in dictating what will go on. I think you're already looking at it where the, if the Mets three through five pitchers, if Carrasco doesn't, I'm not asking him to return to all-star form, Cy Young form, like when he was with the Cleveland Commanders, formerly Indians, okay? If Taiwan Walker stays more like the first half last year Walker than the second half last year, which was an all-star type guy, and Bassett gives you essentially 90% of the 100 all-star he gave you last year, even without Scherzer and DeGrom all the time, you have a chance because that's a good starting rotation. You now just need one of them to be able to carry more of the load as the number one throughout the season. And I honestly, Rock, if I can get into the postseason knowing that DeGrom made 10 to 12 starts later in the year and is going to be fully healthy with less starts than everybody else going to the postseason, I would actually take that. Yeah, uh, listen, I, I'm in too. I, I want them in the postseason. I want to cheer for a Mets team that's exciting. Like you said, every every move he's made past DeGrom and Scherzer um, has, has been a great move. So you can't be upset with what they're looking at. You're frustrated because, you know, DeGrom and Scherzer make you dominant. They don't make you fight. Correct. So, <laughs> you, if you feel like with those two healthy the whole year, you should win with both of them starting. If they both started a combined 60 games, you believe you should win a minimum of 40 of those you, games. It, I just don't see how you lose a series. You know, like, it's right. just, I don't know how you end up losing a series unless and maybe and maybe you split a, a four a four game series when when they're not on the hill. But that's, you know, it's just it's, it's hard to think that you lose any three game series if one of those two guys is picking before hockey with Rocky, I just want to throw a few more odds out here. You can give me any thoughts that come to your mind. The betting favorite, Rocky, to win the World Series this year as we get ready for baseball season this week is the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're essentially plus 500 odds. If you go through both leagues, do you know that the favorite to win the American League is the Toronto Blue Jays? So... I found that very interesting. And then the favorite, obviously, to win the World Series is the Dodgers. So the second favorite, uh, so, so the favorite to win the NL is obviously the Dodgers. But I found this interesting. The odds are that the Braves win the NL East, right? But in terms of National League pennant, the Mets have the second best odds to take the National League crown. Craziness. All I know is that, uh, yes, the Jays are going to be good. If you paid attention to the Jays, the last year, Bichette, Vladdy Jays Jr. Are young. Oh, they're good. They're all 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 former MLB sons. It's kind of crazy, and they are a blast to watch. Yeah. People love watching them, and they were making a ton of buzz. Like the people of Buffalo were loving the Jays when they were playing, and when they were playing in Buffalo, like people forget that happened like, last year. 
Yeah, so I'm telling you, they're they are a team that's been exciting under the radar, um, and and you know, some definitely I I, I can see that. I, I would cheer for the Jays to, to to make a run. If I if I had to give some people a a play that I think could be a play that is is a plus plus option, the Boston Red Sox are plus eleven hundred to win the AL pennant, which is like sixth best odds, and I think. That team is going to be really good. I think that every year, minus one or two, and that was the years when Cora was suspended. In the last 10, they haven't been a great team. They found a way to... It's like what you were talking about with UNC earlier. So I think that is a really good play for somebody out there that's looking to get uh, some banana money lines. And then another one, and I think this is a way harder shot, but probably because a former gunnery guy just got traded there, but the Cincinnati Reds are plus 5,000. And this is a team that was on the precipice of the postseason last year. Um, so I think that could be a, a play on the NL side, Rocky, if you're uh, looking to get some value for your bananas long-term. I like it. Games. My, I, keep, I, I keep my bananas in my pocket. It's, it's just not even worth it for me. It's, it's, prob- it's really probably a good decision I'm, out of you. I'm, 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 too, I'm too much of a sports superstition to, to, to do that. You had a hot hockey with Rocky story. Would you like to get into that right now? Yeah, let's do it because I only got about seven minutes. Now, inside the glass, hockey with Rocky. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Stephen Valiquet, and this is Hockey with Rocky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Steve, welcome to the program. I got two stories for you. Lindenwood University, ACHA Division One announces uh, last week or the week before that they will be now joining the NCAA Division One ranks. Um, That's awesome. So over the over the course of the last ten years, that is the fifth program to elevate to Division One status in, in NCAA hockey. So pretty cool stuff there. I think that's huge because you've mentioned on this program before the and the, the only terminology I could really use here is the lack of NCAA Division One programs, but how good D1 hockey is, and that's, I think, awesome for the game that they keep adding really good universities to the NCAA level. Yeah, and, 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 and another cool part, too, is is yesterday the NCAA released a report. I don't know if it's the NCAA or, or who, who released it, but um, I actually think I saw it on the, the World Hockey Guys actually posted it, too, on Twitter, but it was where all of the uh, Division One NCAA hockey freshmen and what junior leagues they played in so you've got the USHL as, as the number one producer of Division One talent. Uh, then you've got the North American Hockey League, which is also a United States-based hockey league. And they're both now above the British Columbia Hockey League, the BCHL, um, and then the other big one in, in Canada. So, you know, the hockey in the United States is consistently getting bigger year over year, which is, which is exciting. Now, I definitely believe that's true. But can I ask, do you think that because of the COVID situation and Canada being almost on lockdown, that helped shift that? Or do you truly believe that's a natural no. read on where it's at? No, because the driver to the, to the NHL in Canada is major. And right. you lose NCAA. You lose NCAA. So, like, you're not... We're, we're, yeah, the junior leagues that I'm looking at right now are not your pay. For, like, the major junior, you get paid, and you get, like, you get stipends, which is why you're not NCAA eligible. So, so you, if, it's against them. So, so, but like, but prior, 
you know, really USHL is really the true Division One producer of, of hockey in the United States. But now it, it seems, you know, there's a little bit more. And can you just give, before you move on, can you give the people just a quick synopsis of what you're talking about between juniors and major juniors and the stipend thing? Because I'm sure people are out there a little confused. Okay, so imagine um, you go, you're a high school quarterback, you're Carson Palmer, you're playing for Santa Margarita Catholic High School, and USC is like, we want you, you're going to get a full ride. However, we've got two starting quarterbacks that are in line before you. We want you to go play in an in-between league that is a collection of all the best high school football players in the country. They're just not ready. We just don't have roster spots for them yet. So we want you to go fill out. We want you to get stronger. We want you to get bigger. And you're NCAA eligible until you're 21 years old playing in this league. You go play for two years. You get bigger, stronger, faster. And then you go take over the starting role at USC. That's essentially what would happen if it was at the football level. But that's what junior hockey is. It's an opportunity to develop from both a skill standpoint, a physical standpoint, and a maturity standpoint, and find yourself in a better playing situation with two to three more years of, you know, essentially practice uh, to improve your, your hockey skills. And that's why college hockey is so good. And that's why they can translate to the NHL game so much quicker if they're drafted after four years of college hockey, because it's essentially six years of playing that high level of hockey. Yeah, and, and, and hockey is just such a late developing sport. So it, it, it helps people fill out um, sure. physically. All right, get to the flyer story because I want to hear it. Keith Yandel, 989 games, consecutive played, Ironman Street, longest in the league, is shut down on Saturday night by the Philadelphia Flyers, who decided that they needed to play their guys coming up through their system and give them more NHL experience prior to the end of the season. And Keith Yandel's Ironman Street at 989 games comes to an end because of it that's that's terrible that's so eli manning of the flyers like that's just that's terrible like at least get him to a thousand yeah two sides of the argument obviously like you know i don't like it i hate it um you know like there's 11 games left like is that one dude in the lineup really going to make a difference like are you really going to know if they're better or worse than someone else going into the into the season outside of the fact you just want to get them time which i get and at any other moment i'd be like yeah great let's get them in um and then there's the other side of the argument and this is a uh, a mike ruff argument actually where he believes the the record's been manufactured anyway like when yandel was in florida like they were calling for him to be sacked because he was sucking and like Florida wouldn't sit him because they wanted to keep the streak going. And then the next like 20 games behind him is Phil Kessel. I guess Phil Kessel played in a game where he wasn't supposed to be in, but they flew into Chicago so he could be in the lineup and he only played one shift to keep the streak going. Wow. So Rupp's, Rupp's point is that like the streak's already been manufactured, like get over it. It's not a big deal. My point is, is like, is like, it's already over. Okay, the season's maybe, already over. Maybe one or, Maybe one or two games were manufactured, but nine hundred and eighty-nine. Yeah, like, when you on. only have twelve, when you only have twelve games left in the season, and you've got an eleven, and you've, you're eleven games away from a thousand, and in a row. You, and think about this: think about think about the thousand game ceremonies you already give to players when they hit them, and they're not even hitting them consecutively. Yeah. Now, on top of the fact that it's you know you, you get your silver stick. For a thousand and it's consecutive. Yeah, that's it. It's I unbelievable. Just, you and know, I just, I just don't know how you don't want to celebrate that, and and why you want the publicity of being the people that that end. 
when we talk about manufacturing, if you would have told me that 16 different times he pulled a Steven Stamkos in the postseason two years ago to get eligible to win the Stanley Cup and get on the name on, I, I would understand if that happened a lot. But if, if one time in his career over 989 games, they made a decision that he sucks so badly he should be benched, but we actually understand why this matters for him. So we're that's not manufacturing to me. That's just a bad coaching decision. And at the time, you cared more about a streak that probably was 250 games away from the point we're at right now, and it would have been more acceptable to not play him. That's not manufactured to me. That's just circumstances. Why, why not just let the guy play it out, get right. the record, hit, hit a thousand games, Eli and, Manning, and cut him in the and just cut him in the offseason. Ben McAdoo got fired because of that. Had he just let Eli play the rest of that season, I Ben McAdoo might still be the head coach of the New York Giants. I have no idea. That is not true. He I, might have been able to <laughs> coach out the rest of the season, but he wasn't. He, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, what are you trying to prove? I, you know, like at some point, like. At some point, you have to let the players earn earn, earn a little bit of love. Yeah, I mean, and like, and and earn earn above the business of the game. And that's in such this a case, Philly thing to do. My, that's just that's what should have happened. You should have let this guy earn above the business, cut him in the off season, right? Like just the fact that he's in the hundreds to not. I mean, yeah. it's just I, I hate it. So yeah, I agree. But, we've got to run. So give me a, a where did he play junior real quick? Where did he play junior? Hockey, Matt Barzell, New York Islanders. Ooh. Matt Barzell, New York Islanders. He's a U.S. kid, so he had to play in the United States. Correct. I think. Maybe he played not. in the actually, No, he did not. No, he didn't play. This isn't oh, actually, I, I learned this today. This isn't a U.S. league, even though it sounds like it could be. Or no, it is a U.S. league. I don't know. Can I tell you the league, or do you want to guess one more time? Give, give me the league. The Western Hockey League. He played oh, for the. So that's made, oh, so he played for the Everett Steel Pits. He played for the Seattle Thunderbirds. Oh, Seattle Thunderbirds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Western Hockey, Western Western Hockey League is a part of Major Junior. There's three leagues: Western Hockey League, Correct. OHL. I learned that today. I learned that today. That's why. And you know, your streak comes to an end today. But it's a. But okay. But go ahead. No, you go. I was just going to say that, but that's why I chose this specific question because I said, I got to, if we're about to go for 500, I have to put the stakes up a little bit higher. All good. All good. I have one question for you before we sign off. Yes. Next Tuesday night, April 12th, the New York Rangers are at home versus Carolina Hurricanes. I'm getting tickets with Big Rock. You want to go? Ooh, I, I, let me double check our schedule to make sure we don't have a Tuesday game that week. And if we don't, I'm definitely in. I'm in. All right, good. Good deal. We pay, we Ladies did. and gentlemen, that's hockey with Rocky. Oh, that's electric stuff. <laughs> that was just electric stuff. Final words before you leave for the day. Enjoy the week. Go, go Tar Heels because Andrew picks Kansas. <laughs> and, uh, hey, oh, if you, if you want to watch some good games, okay. Florida, so Toronto back-to-back has to play Tampa Bay and Florida. It's going to be great. Okay. And it didn't take top, top 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 three teams in the Atlantic Division, all obviously, you know, getting ready for the playoffs. So I think there'll be three, two really good games. Florida over a hundred points for like the first time in franchise history, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see. It's exciting. We we appreciate the insight always, always. Have a great day, Romo Sapiens. Peace. You too. That is Rocky Romanella, always bringing the heat on hockey with Rocky. As we always do, we take a quick commercial break and then we come back 
and we break down everything we talked about in the first hour. If you missed any of it, you want to listen to it again, just search Wide World of Rome or the Rome Show podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen to what you missed. Or you could share it with a friend because it was so good. 12-Ounce Sports Radio, Zingo TV, channel 761. I'll let my nephew tell you who it is. My nephew, I should say, tell you who it is. And then we'll hit this commercial break. Be back in a minute. It's the Rome Show! It's the Rome Show! Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It is the Rome Show here on 12 Ounce Sports Radio, Zingo TV, Channel 761, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter Live. I am Andrew Romanella. We got you for another 15 minutes or so before the show ends at Wide World of Rome on Twitter and the Gram, whatever you want to reach out on feel free to reach out on facebook.com slash the rome show one we just broke it down with rocky for an hour we talked about who the best college basketball coach of all time is men or women you know we think that it can be a combined conversation uh in rocky in mine's opinion we have john wooden and gino oriema up there as number one and number two uh, Rocky made a valid argument for Pat Summit, and we've talked about a few other coaches such as Dean Smith and Roy Williams from North Carolina, of course, Coach K and some others, uh, but we'd love your opinion on that conversation. So whoever you believe the greatest college basketball coaches all time, men or women, right? Because there's a lot of people I've met that have made the argument for Gino, and I think, yeah, I get it. You could say that would, would it be the same on the men's side, I believe yes, because I believe the system and the type of person he is is a good enough coach to coach any side. I would even argue great coaches could coach any sport, even if it's not their main sport, because they get the most out of the people that they're leading. It's not necessarily always about the X's and O's. It's not necessarily always just about recruiting the best talented player but also developing great people, making those great people better athletes. And great athletes that are great people and do things the right way generally become the great players that we all fall in love with and love watching, whether it's in the NCAA tournament, whether it's at the professional level, it doesn't matter. So who are the greatest college basketball coaches of all time? Rocky and I ranked it as John Wooden, then Gino Oriema. Um, but give us your thoughts at Wide World of Rome on Twitter and the Graham. Talked a little bit of baseball, obviously. A lot of injuries for the Metropolitans. Um, some odds. Some other news that's happened over the last week. Uh, Shaheem Holloway, the head coach of the St. Peter's Peacocks, the number 16 seed that made the first ever run to the Elite Eight. St. Peter's Peacocks head coach Shaheem Holloway is now the Seton Hall Pirates head coach. He graduated from Seton Hall, the big story you probably saw everywhere was the fact that the last time Seton Hall's basketball team was in the Sweet 16 was in two, the year 2000 when Shaheem Holloway was on the roster there as a point guard for the team. Alumni of Seton Hall. Uh, very exciting time for a private school in New Jersey uh, that is trying to get 
the same type of love and recognition that both St. Peter's had this year, but that Seton Hall was familiar with in the 80s, in the 90s. You know, Seton Hall does have a, a storied history of, of very good basketball. And even recently, what Clifford did before he went to Maryland over the last 10 years brought them back to a place of consistent Big East contention, consistent tournament contention. They're not on the level of Villanova. They're not on the level of what UConn was, but they're on the level of an expectation to make the tournament every year and compete in the top five, top six team in the Big East. And that's what a lot of programs are looking for. Now it's how you take the next step. It's how do you get to the point of becoming the next Villanova in the Big East? How do you get to that point? Well, Seton Hall believes it could be Shaheem Holloway. So big signing there for the Pirates. And uh, awesome story out of that too. The entire St. Peter's team, all of the players, actually went to the introductory press conference for Shaheem Holloway at Seton Hall. I thought that was awesome because, you know, a lot of times coaches will get crushed for leaving programs or it's, you know, how are people mad at players when they want to transfer if they're not playing, but coaches can up and leave programs after they've recruited families, et cetera, et cetera, to the school. And I understand the argument. Believe me, I get it. But sometimes there are just decisions you can't, you just can't turn that down. Like, I'm sure when Shaheem Holloway started his career, he had hoped he'd get to his alma mater. A lot of us do. And I'm sure his players understand that. So for the respect level for them to have for their former head coach now to go there, I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, another out of other news uh, that over the last week, uh, this came out of the National Football League. Uh, Bruce Arians, the head coach for the last three seasons of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, retired. Uh, very shocking retiring. A lot of people believe it was uh, a Tom Brady thing. I don't know. He says it's not. Tom says it's not. Do I think it could be a little bit? Sure. I just think. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the league for. Just It really kind of matters on how good you are. Like LeBron James, for example, like eight years into his career, was probably making the decisions on who he wanted to be the head coach of whatever team he was on at that time. But when you get to a certain level of really greatness, you, you, you become almost greater than the franchise. You, you become more important than necessarily any other piece. So if Tom Brady's unhappy, the Buccaneers front office, the Buccaneers brass believes the team won't be as good. So a lot of people w would make the connotation that, okay, Tom Brady decides he's not going to be retired. He's going to come back. And now all of a sudden Bruce Arians retires because what a strange time to step down as the head ball coach of the team. Why wouldn't you have done that when the season ended? It came eerily close to when Tom Brady decided he was going to return, causing speculation and belief that there was a little bit of a rift between Tom Brady and Bruce Arians. I don't know, but what I do know is the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is a Todd Bowles, New York metropolitan area people know who Todd Bowles is, was the head coach of the New York Jets. I've said this on the program before with all of the losing the Jets have done in the last three years since they fi fired Todd Bowles. They've had two head coaches in three years and been very bad. I bet you miss Todd Bowles a little bit, just a little bit. I'm not saying he was the guy, and I'm not saying he's the guy now. He might be because he does have the experience. 
He's got a good offensive coordinator in Byron Leftwich, so he can almost fall a little bit on the side of his defensive side of the ball. Most head coaches, as we've learned, it's very hard to do that. But I think it's not the worst high. I think it's okay. I think it'll be okay for the, the Buccaneers. But a very interesting situation out of Tampa Bay. And I heard this yesterday, and we, we had mentioned this last week, obviously. Tyreek Hill gets traded to the Miami Dolphins. Okay? And one would think, as a Dolphins fan, you should be really excited about that. And I am really excited about it. I'm very excited about it. I think that it really adds to the dimension of this team. You have Jalen Waddle and you have Tyreek Hill. That also then resulted in the Dolphins trading Devontae Parker. They actually traded him to the Patriots, which scares you a little bit. But at the end of the day, they did what they needed to do because they have two of the best, fastest wide receivers they believe in the league. What this trade of Tyreek Hill does is it essentially tells you in the next 17 games of football, if you want to call it 20, if you want to include the preseason, it will tell you who Tua Tagovailoa is. It will. Because the offensive line is good enough. The weapons are clearly good enough. Plus some of the signings they made in the offseason. We went over this last week. Check it out on the podcast at Why World of Rome, the Rome Show podcast, wherever you listen to the podcast. The weapons are there. They have a good enough defense. Top 10, 12 in the league the last two, three years. They have a new head coach, which people are really excited about. Brings a lot of energy, a lot of excitement to the sidelines. Positive offensive mind that's looking to create a system that benefits to a tug of Ilo. The Tyreek Hill trade will tell you directly who Tua is if he's good enough. You'll know in the next 20 games. 17 regular season, three preseason. You'll know. And it's a scary thought as a Dolphins fan. Because quickly you could find out you don't have the franchise quarterback you thought you had. Which is a huge problem. Because the other guys are in the league that you should have or could have drafted. And so I've been making that. This is how I feel. I don't think it's, I think it slightly exposes to. Whereas I heard this argument yesterday and I thought it was a really good argument. He believes this will be fantastic for Tua, the person making this argument, because Tua can just throw the ball up, does, is never going to overthrow, outthrow Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddle for that matter. Right, but this the Tyree kill is really what I think heightens the how you're not good with these two dudes, especially this dude. Like Jalen Wall was possibly the best rookie receiver in the league last year, top one of one of the two. Right? Tyree Kill has been the best receiver in the league for the last four years. Okay. And he's been paired up with one of the best quarterbacks in the league the last four years. So you'll learn. Like, if Tyree Kill's numbers look exactly like they looked the last three years, four years with Patrick Mahomes, then two is probably a guy that can be your franchise quarterback. But if Jalen Waddle's numbers look exactly the same and Tyree Kill's numbers dip, not because he's got Jalen Waddle across from him, because he's always had good wide receivers with him. There's always, Tyree Kill's always been in a system in Kansas City where three or four dudes, Travis Kelsey being one of them, will also be getting a lot of targets. This isn't the first time he's been a part of that. This is actually the first time he's really been the true number one. There's not really that many other options that you're, you're taking over Tyreek Hill. So it'll tell you everything you need to know about Tua. 
And one of my boys from Stack made the point that it could really heighten Tua because he almost doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be that accurate. It's almost like Tyree Kills lined up on the right side of the field, he said, and he's going for a post route, which would take him from the right side of the field on essentially a 45-degree angle to the left side of the field, okay? And he says, Tua's just going to step back, you know, take it in you know, a five-step drop or get it from the shotgun. Tyree Kill will have run 10 yards on the right side of the field. Tua can literally just throw the ball up to the location with where he believes Tyree Kill is going to run, and Tyree Kill is now on a dead sprint from the right side of the field, 45-degree angle, upper post side, left side of the field, and can just run underneath and get that ball. You never have to worry about Tua overthrowing it, being too strong. It's almost like Tyreek will have to slightly slow himself down, and you're really just giving him the chance to be a center fielder 100% of the time. And I found this point interesting because it's true. Maybe, and as a comparison with Chad Pennington, maybe there is something to the, I'm not the hardest throwing quarterback in the league, but I have some of the fastest wide receivers. Because I can be slightly early or slightly off with my throws, but because it's not from an arm strength standpoint, a velocity that isn't catch-upable with the running speed that Waddle and Tyreek Hill have. It could be the left-handed better version of Chad Pennington. Because Tua does have some better tools than Chad Pennington had. Chad Pennington was a very good IQ quarterback that was able to make the intermediate throw at a high level. Whereas Tua with these dudes can look like a guy that can make the long throw. But his wide receivers are really making up the gap between his arm strength and his length and what they're going to be doing to catch the football. So I found this argument very interesting, and it changed my thought a little bit on how I was feeling about what Tua will be, what we will learn about Tua in the 17 regular season games in 2022, and if he'll be the franchise quarterback for us moving forward. And if he's not... Then if I'm the Dolphins, I hard sell out for Jimmy Garoppolo. If eight games into this season, you're the Miami Dolphins and you say to yourself, I don't think Tua Tugavailoa is the guy to win us a championship. If you say that with who your head coach is, the former offensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers, with what's gone on in San Francisco since they moved up to draft Trey Lance last year, and even the things that have been said this offseason at the end of the season with Jimmy Garoppolo almost essentially saying goodbye to the franchise before a trade even happens. If I realize, and I'm the Dolphins, that Tua is not the guy halfway through the season, I am calling the San Francisco 49ers, and I'm saying, listen, we have the best backup quarterback in the league for you right now. We will trade you Tua and some other stuff, because I get it. You're probably not trading a Jimmy Garoppolo for a Tua straight up. Even though you may think their talent levels could line up in a way, they don't because Jimmy's proved to be a winner. And he's gone to a Super Bowl. He's gone to two NFC Championships games. He's proven to be a winner. So you can't just trade him straight up. But that's what I would do if I was the Dolphins. I have more hope now that this point has been made to me because I do see how this could ultimately really make Tua the guy that the Dolphins believe Tua should be. At the end of the day, if he's not, call the Niners. Get yourself Jimmy Garoppolo. Thank you to everybody that tuned into the Rome Show today here on 12 Ounce Sports Radio, Zingo TV, Channel 761, Facebook, 
YouTube, and Twitter Live. Thank you to Rocky for his always glowing insight. We remind you that if you missed this part of the show, any part of the show, or want to re-listen to the show or share it with your friend, just simply search Wide World of Rome or the Rome Show Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next Monday. I'm Andrew Romanella signing out on the Rome Show today. Peace! Um, thank you for listening. Shell fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls, them good.